2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I read about a little girl who went up to her mother one day while holding her stomach, and she said, Mommy, Mommy, my, my stomach hurts. Her mother said, Well, that's because it's empty, honey. You have to put something in it. Later that day, the family had the evangelist over, and his wife, and they had him over for dinner, and the wife began to feel kind of bad, you know, and holding on to her head, she said, I have such a terrible headache. And that little girl piped up and said, well, that's because it's empty. You have to put something in it. <laughs> you may have felt like telling somebody that every once in a while, too, but... She did that, unaware, but I heard about a farmer, he, he called the office of the minister, uh, looking for the minister, and uh, when he called, he, he, uh, he said, listen, uh, he said, uh, I want to I talk to the head hog at the trough, and the receptionist, of course, said, well, sir, uh, if you're talking about our beloved minister, I mean, you can call him reverend, you can call him pastor, but... Now, I don't think it would be proper to refer to him as the head hog of the trough. Well, all right, said the farmer. I just sold a few sows and was going to donate $10,000 to the building fund, so I was kind of hoping to catch him. Oh, just a minute, sir. I, I think I just heard the little porker come in. <laughs> yeah. Look how quickly things change, huh? All right, Second Chronicles chapter nine. Second Chronicles chapter nine. Just no. If I say Chronicles, it's Chronicles. And once you found Second Chronicles chapter nine, then turn to Second Corinthians chapter nine. All right. All right, second, so i tell you what, I'm going to put the Chronicles on hold for now. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's exactly what I want. <laughs> Let's hope it's what God wants, right? Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Here we go. Let's get started today. We remember we've been in a series, uh, a cheerful giver series, and today's our last one of that series, and so we're going to end it all today, at least it seems that way, and if I don't... I'm not careful. I may end it sooner than I wanted to. But nonetheless, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, the Bible says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. And again, we've been dealing with a cheerful giver, and, and that's good. But um, some have said, that there are three kind of givers, by the way. There's the flint, the sponge, and the honeycomb. And to get anything out of the flint, you've got to hammer it. And then, and then you only get chips and sparks. To get water out of the sponge, you had to squeeze it. And so the more you use pressure, the more pressure you assert, the more you'll get. But the honeycomb. The honeycomb just overflows with its own goodness and sweetness. I wonder today, what kind of giver are you? Are you a cheerful giver today? Is it something that just flows? Or are you like that sponge, you've got to get pressure before you want to really give? Oh, great, I've got to do this. Or you're even the flint. You've got to get pounded. 
I would hate to think that'd be the case with anyone today. In 1899, more than 500 titles were compiled in a bibliography on the subject. The subject of tithing and systematic proportional giving. 500 titles. Today, if you would search the world's bookstores, if you would look at the libraries and even the World Wide Web, you would find that teaching on giving isn't really a very popular subject anymore. It's kind of a silent subject in the Christian community. Christians, however, sit on untold masses of finances and wealth like never before. I mean, even the average Christian teenager in America has more disposable cash income than 50% of the world's population. I mean, disposable income. We're not talking about to pay bills. We're talking about just money to spend. It's estimated that teenagers have an estimated $2,600 to $5,000 in spendable, disposable income. And you say, well, my kid doesn't. If your kid works a part-time job, he doesn't pay any bills, that's all disposable income. He's spending whatever he wants on. He might save some, she might save some, but in the long run, they buy clothes, they buy videos, they buy um, all kind of different things, maybe even a car. Disposable income, money that they have to spend. Isn't that amazing when you think about how wealthy we are as Americans? Yet while our wealth has increased, let's just be honest, very few Christian leaders are even addressing the issue of giving. It's not something we want to talk a lot about because we know it often seems to turn the people off. But let me tell you something. The departure from biblical giving, even though we have more wealth in America than we've ever had, has drastically affected our ability to reach the world with the gospel. Proportionately, we give less than ever as a nation to missions and to Christian giving and purposes. And yet our nation is more dire and desperate than ever. And the world is further sinking into hell. And yet it seems that if anything, we want to hold on to what we have instead of give it for that purpose of reaching them. Over the past few weeks, we've considered the basis of giving and the blueprint of giving. We learned that the basis of giving is self. That it all begins with a willingness to give ourselves unto the Lord and then the rest follows. And then last week we talked about the blueprint of giving. We took a journey through the, the Word of God. We noted giving historically from kind of the beginning till now. We learned that the tithe was before the law, then it was part of the law, and it is now the beginning place for New Testament giving. And this week I want to conclude our series by addressing the beauty of giving. The beauty of giving. You think about beauty, you think about something nice. Well, giving's a wonderful thing. And we're going to talk about the beauty of giving this morning, giving this morning as we move ahead and as we, com as we complete our series. So let's pray. Father, we come to you. Thank you again, Lord, for all you've done. Help us, Lord, today. May we be encouraged, instructed, and inspired. Lord, you're a good God. You've been so good to us. Father, we have so much to be thankful for. And Father, we just pray today that you would bring to our remembrance the many blessings that you have bestowed upon us. Help us now, Lord, as a people to receive your word, to receive it gladly, to drink it in, and then, Father, to apply it to our lives. 
We need your Holy Spirit to drive us, to move us, to bend our knee even, and Lord, to take the truth and really make it applicable to our lives. Father, Holy Spirit of God, help us. We need you, Lord. We can't do it without you. Well, thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us and being there for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We think about the beauty of giving. One of the wonderful beauties of giving is that we are included. We're included. See, our opportunity to give to God is actually His gift to us. Let me say that again. Our opportunity to give to God is actually God's gift to us. See, it's the gift of participation. God enables us and allows us to participate. He allows us to join with Him in the work. We have the privilege of literally sitting in the boardroom of heaven and being on site with the master builder. That's exciting. And although God could complete His work without us, He permits us to join Him in that wonderful privilege. And as the souls are saved and lives are transformed and changed, as people come to Jesus Christ and their their families are restored and their homes are rebuilt and the community is reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the distinct honor of becoming a part of all of it and enjoying the participation of it. Henry Cronwell, or Crowell, excuse me, contracted tuberculosis as a boy. And after hearing D.L. Moody preach, he made this prayer to God. He said, I can't be a preacher, but I can be a good businessman for God. If you'll let me make money, I will use it in your service. He later started the Quaker Oats Company. And he consistently gave 60 to 70% of his income to the Lord's work. He may not have been able to enter the ministry at that time, but he he could participate in reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beauty of giving is that we're included. We're included. But also the beauty of giving, we're invested. We're invested. We're invested in others, first of all. Marquise... De Lafayette was a French officer who provided an invaluable, invaluable assistance to George Washington uh, in the struggling American army early on in the Revolution. After the war was over, he returned to France, and he resumed his life as a farmer, and he had many estates, a tremendous uh, amount of wealth. In 1783, the harvest was very slim. It was a terrible harvest, as a matter of fact, and there were many who were suffering as a result of that. Lafayette's farms were unaffected, amazingly, by this particular downturn. He had a worker that he trusted, one that had been by his side a number of years. He began to look over the situation, the circumstances, and he went to Lafayette and he made a recommendation. He said, sir, the bad harvest has raised the price of wheat. This is the time to sell. After thinking about the hungry peasants that lived in the surrounding villages, Lafayette disagreed, and he said this, No, this is the time to give. See, God blesses us not just for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others, that we can be a blessing to others in need. 
The tendency in America, it seems to me, is to kind of hoard what we have and try to build up more and more, but that's very dangerous. The best antidote for greed is to be very generous in your giving. If you feel like you want to hold on to things, start to just give it. Winston Churchill once made this statement. He said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Boy, is that good. Let me say that again. Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Christian writer Murray J. Harris made this statement, all too often we regard stewardship simply as a matter of giving to God. But this aspect is secondary. Before we can give, we must possess. And before we possess, we must receive. Therefore, stewardship is, in the first place, receiving God's good and bounteous gifts. And once received, those gifts are not to be used solely for our own good. They must also be used for the benefit of others and ultimately for the glory of God, the giver. The steward needs an open hand to receive from God and then an active hand to give to God and to others. It's been said that the hole you give through is the hole you receive through. How big is that hole today? I think sometimes people don't feel like God is giving them anything. Could it be because they have yet to really give to God? So we see the beauty of giving is that we are invested in others. But not only that, but we are invested in eternity. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have shewed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. He said, God's not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. God's not going to forget those things. J.L. Kraft, the head of Kraft Cheese Corporation, he said, The only investment I ever made which has paid consistently increasing dividends, is the money I've given to the Lord. May I tell you today that what is recorded on earth will be rewarded in heaven? What is recorded on earth will be rewarded in heaven. Missionary Jim Elliott ultimately lost his life trying to reach the Alka Indians. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This man had a young family, a wife and a child, at least one for sure, and he went and tried to reach an unreached people. He was murdered and killed and martyred for the cause of Christ. A young man with a family, but he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He said, but he gave up his life. You can't keep that and neither can I. Today, within the ranks of this church, there are people at every stage of life, living proof that life is fleeting, visible proof that we all end up in a grave one day. Jim Elliott was young, yes, had a wife and child, but he understood how significant eternity was. He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Not only do we see that we're included and we're invested, but also one of the great beauties of giving is that we are increased. 
were increased. In Malachi chapter 3.10, it says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there will not be room enough to receive it. In 2 Corinthians 9.6, we've already read today, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, we read, Give, and it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. R.G., this is a tough one, R.G. Leturniu, let it suffice. He was a Christian businessman. He made this statement, he said, I shovel out, and God shovels in. In God's, uh, but God's shovel is always bigger. Isn't that something? He said, I shovel out and God shovels in, but God's shovel is always bigger. You know, we should never give to get. It's really not the reason to give. I mean, if anything, we've already gotten. We have every reason in the world to give, not just our finances, but ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. As he said in Romans 12:1, it is our reasonable service to present ourselves unto the Master. To give ourselves wholeheartedly without reservation to Jesus Christ is our reasonable service because of everything and all that He's done for us already. So it's not the point. We don't give to get. should not be the reason. However, you can always trust that as you do give, your God will meet your needs and often in very special ways. You can't outgive God and God will be a debtor to no man. That we know. A harsh famine had engulfed the land and God had been supernaturally feeding his servant. Elijah had been by the brook and there the ravens would come and feed him flesh and he'd drink of the water in the midst of the famine. But God had another plan. After six months by the brook, it dried up. And God sent Elijah to Zarephath where he was going to find a little widow woman there, and that widow woman would sustain her, sustain him, excuse me. He asked her to fetch him some water and to bring him some bread. But she responds by saying in 1 Kings 17, 12, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal and a barrel, and a little oil and a cruise, and behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And there wasn't very much hope for this widow woman. There she was with a child, and she had no money, she had no real income, she had no real ability to provide for her child, she had nothing in the pantry, she had nothing in the cupboards, she was bare Empty. She said, I'm going to make my final meal. We're going to eat one last cake and we're going to die, sir. And Elijah said, well, make a cake for me first. Give to me first and to your God. 
You know what the widow woman did? She exercised faith in God and faith in that man of God, and she obeyed the prophet. In 1 Kings chapter 17, 15, and 16, the Bible says, And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. I thought she had only one meal left, and she was giving it to the prophet. But no, in this case, it says that her and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. I mean, to tell you, that cruise of oil there, every time she poured it out, it seemed to fill up supernaturally. Every time she dipped into that, that barrel of meal, it just seemed to refill on its own. God had supernaturally done a miracle there, and he provided for her and her family. She had thought that she was preparing her last meal, and now she's basking in abundance, even amidst this horrible, horrible drought. Not only her family, but others were cared for. The man of God, her, her child, and I'm sure a few others got in on it. All because she exercised faith and gave as directed by God. See, in verse 9, God had told Elijah, his prophet, he had said, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Well, she had nothing, and yet God had commanded her to sustain the prophet. See, the fact is, is that God did not need that widow woman to, in order to sustain Elijah. He didn't need her. I mean, he had been feeding Elijah there by the brook. He had been feeding him supernaturally as ravens brought meat and flesh. And he had been meeting every need in the life of his man. And yet God says, I'm going to send you to a woman that has nothing. And I want her to feed you and care for you. He didn't need that woman to do that, though. He could have supernaturally easily provided as he had already been doing for his prophet. But see, God had bigger plans. The truth is that God sent Elijah to the poor widow woman in order that she and her household might be sustained. Although he told her she is to sustain and to meet the need of the prophet, the fact was that God sent him to help meet her need. Had she not believed the promise of God and exercised her faith in God, she and her family would surely perish in the famine. So what seemed to be a curse at first was really a blessing in disguise, wasn't it? I mean, can you imagine today if I came to your house and said, guess what? I need you to meet all my needs. You're going to provide for my food, my clothing. You're going to pay for my lodging. You're going to take care of this and this and this and this. You're going to meet my every need in the midst of this famine. Oh, I know the economy's horrible. You don't have two nickels to rub together. You and your family are already going to lose your house in foreclosure. You already have lost your job and have no money to put food on the table. You're already seeking some kind of assistance yourself. But guess what? Before you do anything for yourself, you do it for me. What would you say to me? Think about the faith this woman had to have to obey God in this aspect of giving. Honestly, think about it for a minute. Sometimes we just kind of glubbly fly through the pages of the Bible and we just, oh, you know. Think about what she had to deal with. Think about the step of faith that it was. You say, but she had nothing. She had nothing to lose, so why not try it? Well, you'd have had nothing to lose in that last scenario, but would you have? Oh, you know, I think differently. I would be very surprised if anybody said, praise the Lord. I'm sure God asked you to take from us first, preacher. Thank you. That's such a blessing. Surely God spoke to your heart about that. 
you, I think well, we'd be very surprised how many people would have given their final meal to the preacher. I don't know that I would have. But this widow woman obeyed the Lord and obeyed the prophet and God blessed her. He didn't need her, but he used her. And then in turn, he blessed her. It was really for her benefit. And sometimes I think we feel that we can't afford to tithe, but can't afford to give. But let me tell you something. God's simply offering you and I an opportunity to be supernaturally sustained. We've got to exercise faith. We've got to permit God to provide for us. Often we misunderstand God's motivation for giving, don't we? Again, we hear the man of God stand up and preach or teach about these issues of giving, and we get the impression that it's all about giving to the church. It's all about benefiting the church. If we're not careful, that's what we're told to believe by the devil, or by our flesh, really. That's not the real goal of God, and it's not the real goal for us. God has another reason for allowing you to participate, for including you, because he wants to increase you. See, God will never be a debtor, as we said already. And the truth is that tithing and offerings, uh, that's not supporting God's business. A person doesn't give a dime of his tithe to keep God in business. God keeps his people in business. Every good gift and every perfect gift coming down from the Father of lights. Is God handicapped today? Is God in need this morning? Is God desperate for your help or mine? Absolutely not, huh? But you know what? We are so vain and prideful and arrogant that we get the idea somehow we're going to help God with what we give. Oh, he needs me to get this done. If it wasn't for my giving, this church would never be able to accomplish anything. Hold on. Listen, don't, don't tell me that the flesh doesn't want to start to feel that way sometimes. And all I'm saying is, is listen, unless God is sitting up there, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, he's sitting up there, an invalid, unable to do anything for himself. And the truth is, he doesn't really need me to accomplish his work. He gives me the opportunity to be a part of it. And then he turns around and increases me to boot. And he does the same for you and I, all of us. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the creator and possessor of all things. We're merely the benefactors of his marvelous grace and mercy. See, the beauty of giving is this. We are included See, the widow was given the opportunity and privilege of being involved with and part of what God was doing. We're invested. The widow woman, her giving was recorded on earth and it'll be rewarded in heaven. We are increased. The widow woman's obedient giving, her obedient giving opened the windows of heaven and blessed in her life and in the lives of others. The beauty of giving. The sun began to set and the disciples were ready to call it a day. They suggested to Jesus that he send the multitude away, that they may 
enter into the villages and buy themselves victuals or food. Instead, instead of dismissing the crowd as recommended by the disciples, Jesus had another idea. He issues an assignment for the disciples. Instead, he says, they need not depart, give ye them to eat. Now, this was no small group, you must understand. I mean, as a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that there were 5,000 men alone. If each one of those men just had a wife and only one child, that means the crowd was 15,000 strong. The reality is, is that it was likely much greater than that. And here we have now the 12 disciples being given this assignment to feed the multitude. I mean, how could 12 men provide food for a crowd like that? I mean, that's impossible. It's utterly ridiculous. It's inconceivable, is it not? Yeah, I can't even imagine those disciples. I, I can only imagine them gulping, looking at each other in total disbelief. Are you kidding me? What's he on? Are you... What? You, you want us to... To what? Feed the multitude? Oh, they may not have expressed it. They may not have said it. But Philip did. Philip jumped up. Philip finally responded first. And he said, he said well... 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them. All we have is 200 penny worth of bread. Five loaves and two fishes, Lord. That's not enough food to feed 15, 20, maybe 25,000 people. That's an impossibility. We couldn't even feed a big family, let alone all these people. But remember, and never forget this, it's never about what man can do for God, but what God can do for man. Sure, the job was big for the disciples, but it, it was not big for God. And Jesus is God in flesh. And they received, they received that boy's meager offering. That little five loaves and two fishes, and they began to distribute it as directed by the Master. When it was all eaten and all were satisfied, the fragments were collected. And guess what? There were 12 baskets full remaining. That's right. Not five loaves and two fishes, but 12 basketfuls. You know, that boy ate and so did the thousands. And on top of it all, leftovers. Imagine. 12 baskets of leftovers. That's how God does math. See, our opportunity to give to God is actually His gift to us. It's the gift of participation. Think about it. Again, once again, Jesus didn't need the boys' lunch to feed the multitude. I mean, anybody that can take five loaves and two fishes and feed 15,000 or more people with it certainly doesn't need the five loaves and two fishes to get the job done. But by accepting that little lunch, Jesus gave that boy the joy of being part of something much bigger than he could have ever accomplished on his own. Can you imagine how his life went after that? I can only imagine when he went to school 
that he got along with the fellas and he said, guys, listen, I don't know if you know it or not, but remember when Jesus fed all those people out there? Guess what? Guess what? That was my lunch he used. That was my lunch. No, that wasn't your lunch. Yes, it was. I had five loaves and two fishes. Mama sent me away. I didn't know she wanted me to come back. But anyway, she sent me away with five loaves and two fishes. And when I got there, they, Jesus told those disciples, you're going to feed these multitudes. And they said, there's no way. We don't have it. We can't do it. All we got is this little bit. Hey, young man, let us have that little bit. That's all we got, sir. That's all we got. My lunch. My lunch. All those people ate on my lunch in God's power. I would imagine it changed his life forever. I don't think that young man probably ever doubted that Jesus was Messiah or Lord. He did it for the boy's sake. He allowed that boy to participate, to be included. See, the beauty of giving is that we're included. The boy was given the opportunity and privilege of being involved with and part of what God was doing. We're invested. The boy's giving was recorded on earth, and it will be rewarded in heaven. And we're increased. The boy's obedient giving opened the windows of heaven and blessed in his life, and the blessings in his life, and in blessings in others. See, remember those leftovers? (laughs) Listen to me, God didn't need the disciples either. He didn't need those guys. I mean, he had had them, he had them assemble the multitude in groups of 50, and then he blessed the food, and then he began to distribute it among the people. The Lord could have easily distributed the food supernaturally as he had miraculously multiplied it, but instead, he gave the disciples the gift of participation. He allowed them to be a part of it, to be included in it. Do you know they were able to accomplish together what they could never have done single-handedly. And isn't, how that, isn't that how God works today? He takes a group like this today and He puts us all together. He calls us out from among the world and He gives us the opportunity to come together in fellowship. And He cries out to each of us and He says, Just give me your little lunches. Give me what you've got. Allow me to take it and multiply it. Allow me to use it and be a part of this whole process and then enjoy the bounty of it all. Listen, we can't accomplish projects without each other. We can't reach the world without one another. We can't fulfill the purpose and the calling of God without one another. God gives us the privilege of participating with Him in this great work. I want you to think about this as we close. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and put it away. I want you to really think about this thought as we get prepared to close. In one year... Just one year following this event, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus would ascend up into heaven. One year later, he would no longer be on earth. One year later, he would assign those 12 disciples another seemingly impossible task. 
to share the bread of life with the world. He would, in essence, look at his 12 disciples and say, Feed the multitude. And when he did, they went back in their minds just a year before and remembered the multitudes and the seemingly impossible task of feeding them literal bread and God supernaturally supplying. And they said, Yes, sir. We'll take on that task. We'll go ahead and give ourselves to the work of the ministry. We'll allow ourselves to reach out and do what seemingly is impossible. I mean, 12 men, just 12 men, 12 frightened men, they brought the gospel to the entire world, and not just any world, a very hostile world at that. Impossible, yes. Too big, without a doubt. Not even a chance in my mind. But they did it. They did it. They turned the world upside down, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts. They literally reached around the globe with the gospel of Jesus Christ in their very lifetime. God calls us to do the same thing today. We are to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that definitely seems like an impossible task. And may I say it is on our own. But we are not alone. We have Jesus. We need only put our resources, our time, our money, our voices, and even our very lives at Jesus' disposal and just simply obey His direction. He'll multiply our efforts too. You know what? The rest will be history. Let me ask you as we wind her down, what do you give that what do you give that offers something eternal? What do you give to, I should say, that offers something eternal? That provides any more hope and that makes such a difference? than giving to God through the local church. I mean, what, what do you give, what do you give to? You can give to a, the United Way. You can give to some other organization or institution. But hold on a second. I want you to think about literally the investment for a moment. What do you give to that offers something eternal that provides anything, any more hope, and that makes such a difference than your giving through the local church. See, you're not just investing in a light bill, but in spreading the light. You're not just paving, uh, paying for heat, you are paving the way for heaven for others. You're not just keeping the doors open, but instead you're opening the doors of numerous hearts to Jesus Christ. There is no better gift given than that that we give to God through the local church. Nothing. See, the beauty of uh, giving in your life is that you'll be included. You'll be included. Your giving... You're given the opportunity and the privilege of being involved with and part of what God is doing today.
in this world and in the lives of others. You'll be invested. Your giving will be recorded on earth and it will be rewarded in heaven. And you will be increased. Your obedient giving will open the windows of heaven and blessing in your life and in the lives of others. See, I'm confident and I'm convinced that God can do more with our 90% than we can do with our 100. Let me say that again. I'm confident and I'm convinced that God can do more with our 90% than we can do with our 100. Someone says, I can't afford to give that 10. I think God can do more with the 90 than, he can, than you can do with the 100. That's what I'm saying. Today, maybe you're lost. You say, what do you mean? You, you don't know for sure. Heaven's your home. You've never settled in your heart, your life, where you're going to spend eternity. Let me give you a couple things. First of all, you must give yourself to Christ. You know, today we, we've touched on giving, and it seems that the emphasis obviously has been finances. But listen, for you, that's not the emphasis. The emphasis today, if you are without Christ, is you must give yourself to him. See, he deserves you, and he desires you. Your heart is sinful, and may I say it is utterly wicked today. There is nothing good about you in your heart. Nothing. You say, well, that's encouraging. Well, I'm just stating what the Bible says. For in Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. By the way, that includes all of us today. Your sin is great, but let me tell you this. The good news is that Christ's love is greater than your guilt. His sacrifice is accepted by the Father, and His blood, sufficient payment for your sin today. But you know what? You're going to have to come face to face with the wretched state of your life, your heart. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about who and what you are. And the Bible says you are like an open sore. In his sight, putrid and disgusting. There's not one human being in their heart when God, the perfect judge, looks at us, sees anything but disgust. It is sinful, we are wicked, and for that reason we need him. We don't need him to turn our life around. We don't need him to fix our every problem. What we need Him to do for us is wash our wretched sin away. And I'm sadly concerned about the state of Christianity because I am very, very convinced that we have lost sight of why we need Christ today. Somehow we have sold a bill of goods that everybody is good in their heart, that everybody's a decent person. But let me tell you, biblically and scripturally, there is nothing good. The Bible says there's none that doeth good, no, not one. And what he's getting at is that within the man and within a woman today is nothing but lust, sin, and evil. And the fact is, is that God himself cannot permit that sinfulness to enter into his very presence. He is perfect and holy and righteous, and we must deal with our sin before a holy God, or God will deal with our sin at the judgment. 
And today I want you to know if you are here today and you don't have sin settled and dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ, he is opening his arms this morning and he's saying, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You don't have to bear the guilt of your sin. You don't have to bear the burden of your sin. You just need to let me have it. I died on Calvary. I shed my blood. I gave myself so that you could live forever. And you have to come humbly to God, repentantly to God, and say, I don't want my sin anymore. I don't want to live in this wickedness. I want you to be the master of my life. And give Him your heart, your all today. And then ask Him to save you. And commit your life to Jesus Christ. Father, we come to You. Thank you, Father, for all you've done for us. All that you mean to us. Lord, today, help us, Lord, to truly get a glimpse of who and what we really are. Instead of believing the lies we tell ourselves and the lies that others tell us, help us to truly look into the Word of God and see ourselves as the sinners we are and the need that we have for you and your holiness. Thank you that you forgive sin. Thank you that you wash us clean. Thank you that you make us new creatures in Christ. But Lord, help us to never forget how vile and wretched we are within and how much we need you. We cannot forsake you. We must lean on you. We must draw closer to you. We need you more than ever in our life. Father, today there may be one that's here today that needs Jesus as their Savior. May they, Father, be willing to come to you humbly, admitting their sinfulness, their their guilt before you, who are a holy God, a perfect God, and beg you to forgive them, and beg you to cleanse them, and beg you to make them new, and to give them a fresh start in your kingdom. Lord, help us now, Holy Spirit, convict us. And Lord, for the believer today, Lord, maybe they too have sin they need to confess and deal with. Oh, it may not be sin now that's going to send them to hell, but it is sin that needs to be addressed if they want to be fruitful in their, their walk with you. Father, I pray, dear God, that you'd help us to please you today in our decisions. And Lord, we'll thank you and help us to realize how much of a blessing it is to participate in giving. Of self and even our own finances in every aspect of our life. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.